Open enrollment is here for Affordable Care Act plans near you. What do you, and I'm talking both to our patient listeners and provider listeners, need to be prepared for? And should we have pandemic information amnesty? Ron and I will discuss that and more from Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. This is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about uh, kind of a you know a sorted mix of uh, topics today. Uh, some surrounding uh, the open enrollment coming up for. Uh, the Affordable Care Act plans. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about uh, Medicaid expansion and spending growth and enrollment growth as well over the last year and what the trends look like going forward. And finally, I want to enter into a little bit of a debate about whether or not we should have uh, pandemic information amnesty, an idea that was floated around and argued about both in the Atlantic and the National Review this week. Uh, and it's a concept that we should kind of just move on and forgive the mistakes that were made and forget about it and move forward with our lives and with the other side saying, no, we need to go back and make sure that we have some corrective action on, on what took place during the pandemic. So with that in mind, I want to start with uh, open enrollment, which is coming up for the affordable care act plans. Uh, it starts, um, you're coming up soon. I had the date in front of me and now I lost it. So if you want to tell me, Ron, when open enrollment starts, I would appreciate that. Uh, I think it started today. I think it's November 1st, um, through the end of the year. Okay, November 1st, um, and then it looks like some states also go through January 15th. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I guess the first question, Ron, is, is because I think a lot of people don't understand it, particularly non-Americans, and we do have a few non-American listeners, that, uh, why do we have in the U.S. an enrollment period for health insurance as opposed to allowing someone to buy health insurance, particularly exchange plans, all year long? Um, well, there's there's two things here. First of all, there are some situations where you can buy into the exchanges all year long. Those are called qualifying events. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, um, you or a spouse loses their job in the middle of the year and you don't qualify for Medicaid, that's a qualifying event. You can buy, you have a your own little open enrollment period. Um, if your uh, spouse is counting on you for your employer-based coverage and you pass away, Suddenly, your spouse doesn't have coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are those special circumstances called qualifying events. But the real question is, why don't we let people just buy the insurance whenever they want to? Well, the reason is, it's the same reason why you can't retrospectively buy car insurance after you get into a car wreck. Okay. And the other part of the answer is, if you remember the the old children's game, the hokey pokey, you know, put your mm-hmm. left leg in. You put your, well, because they don't want people popping in and out of coverage when they need it. Okay. Healthcare, a little bit unlike a car accident, um, you could get a diagnosis and say, you, you know, you have this situation, you've torn your meniscus or you have cancer, you're going to need healthcare in the next several months. And so you could then buy insurance only when you need it. And then when you were done or when the baby was delivered or my knee was fixed, drop the health insurance. And mm-hmm. that ruins the whole actuarial model of we have to cover people while they're healthy to pay for the people they're sick. Um, again, it's why they won't let you say, Hey, I got into a car accident last week. Can I buy my insurance and retro date it? Because mm-hmm. in essence, you'd be able to do the same thing. So it's the reason that we don't want people to buy it only when they need it because it ruins the whole actuarial model. And we don't want people to phase in and out of coverage as they need it. And it's not just illnesses. You could see people that could say, Hey, tell you what, I'm going to buy insurance for this month. Um, I'm going to take all my kids to the doctor, get all their shots and everything. And then I'm going to drop it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, it would destroy the whole model. So that's the reason why we have this open enrollment period while still allowing people that need coverage for, you know, for these special events that they couldn't control to buy at mid-year. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I, I think it's no longer necessarily in effect, the individual mandate, how does that uh, play a role with the open enrollment period, if at all? Well, the individual mandate doesn't really pay play impact on the open enrollment period other than 
it was set to say, well, you will have an opportunity each year to buy. And then if you choose not to, under the individual mandate, you're going to have to pay that penalty for that tax year. Mm -hmm. um, so those are how those two things are. It allowed the person the opportunity every year to avoid that mandated penalty. Let's move on to a little bit of, of some of the changes that are coming uh, with the Affordable Care Act. And I think some of them are COVID era changes and some of them are different state changes. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the, the main ones that have come out that I think the Biden administration has talked about a number of times called the family glitch yep. uh, has supposedly been fixed. And that's people who previously did not qualify for subsidies under the Affordable Care Act now do. Uh, and that was a rule recently finalized by the, the Treasury Department. What was the family glitch and how did uh, the Biden administration work to kind of fix that quote unquote glitch? Yeah, and the family glitch, there's a number of things in there are, are truly a testament to the, you know, we, we all remember the Nancy Pelosi statement, we got to sign it and figure out what's in it. Mm -hmm. Well, any piece of legislation this big, and this 2000 pages, um, they're going to be things that are going to be wow, we didn't, didn't figure that out. You know, right. and the family goods was one of them. So the concept was for these subsidies were that you were going to qualify for a subsidy under a couple of different situations. One is your employer group doesn't offer credible coverage. Okay. So mm -hmm. I work, but my employer doesn't offer insurance coverage. I work for a landscaping company. There's only 50 of us, 40 of us there and, and they don't even offer it. So I don't, so I can then qualify for a subsidy as long as my income is below a certain poverty level. Right. Okay. Well, what if your employer offers insurance, but it's not very good or it's obscenely expensive. So they put this thing in there that said that if the cost of your insurance, the premium for job-based coverage exceeds a certain percentage of your total income, well, that's really unaffordable for you. And therefore you, you can buy ACA coverage and qualify for the subsidy. So it's a way for you to say, my job offers it, but I really can't even afford it, okay? The problem is, the way the law was based, it said it exceeds a percentage of your income, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of employers, especially employers that are smaller employers, et cetera, they say, well, I'll pay for the cost for the employee, but I'm not going to pay for any of the cost for the family members. And so if I'm just covering me, yeah, maybe it's affordable. But when I want to add my wife and my three kids, suddenly it becomes astronomically expensive. That's the family glitch. Um, so now they fixed the glitch and you can not only look at just your cost, but the cost for adding your family and you can look at them separately now. So for example, I could say, well, I'm going to take the employer coverage for me because it, it my employer covers almost all of that, but I can't add my family. It, it exceeds this percentage, this income um, percentage. And so my family can all qualify for the Affordable Care Act coverage and get a subsidy for it, or you can, or you can lump it all together. So I, I think it truly was something that they just, in the heat of the moment of, of passing it, didn't fully understand. And now they're sort of plugging that hole. Now, that being said, if you're going to have a million more people suddenly qualify for the subsidy, it's going to be a lot more expense to the federal government and a lot more mm -hmm. deficit. Yeah, the Kaiser Health News is saying the the the, the premium for 2023, the premium has to exceed 9.12% of the person's expected 2023 income. And you're exactly right. Now they're looking at the cost of employee-only co coverage, as well as the cost of adding family members uh, if they're interested in getting a, a family plan. Um, and I think, and I think there was somebody who estimated that the added cost to the federal government every year for that picking up those people is something like $2.6 billion. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, again, if you're one of those people, great. And I think it was the general intent, but it, you know, it is going to add to the, add to the deficit. Right. Um, preventative care is still going to be covered without a copay as a standard under the Affordable Care Act. And that includes different things like tests, uh, vaccines and, and drugs, as well as a range of preventative services. Um, we talked previously about a ruling in Texas by Judge Reed O'Connor, mm -hmm. uh, who is uh, no stranger to people who follow the Affordable Care Act, who said that uh, certain things like HIV screenings and HIV treatment uh, shouldn't be covered by Affordable Care Act plans as part of the you know religious freedom. I think there was a religious freedom argument there from some employers. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen any changes on that, or do you still think that that's, uh, that's going to be litigated for a little bit longer? Uh, you know, I think that's going to be litigated. I think that's likely to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, right now that makes that a little bit of in limbo. 
Mm -hmm. Um, and so patients looking forward, aren't sure whether they're going to have to pay for that stuff or not. Um, but we're, I think again, the U S Supreme court is going to be the final rule on that. And we just don't know what that's going to look like yet. Sort of in the same vein, um, abortion coverage varies from state to state under the Affordable Care Act. And I guess before I we start with, with where it's covered and where it isn't, I was under the impression that uh, it wouldn't be covered by anything in the Affordable Care Act because of the Hyde Amendment. And um, I guess I, I was wrong in that because there's a, there's a number of states that require abortion to be covered uh, in the ACA plans and in employer plans. Yeah, so one of the, and this gets horribly complicated mm -hmm. because, you know, you're dealing with this cross back and forth between state and federal, um, U.S. Constitution versus states' rights, et cetera. Right. The Affordable Care Act plans are still fully insured covered plans, okay? So the federal government did pass some mandated benefit stuff, um, and now we've got, you know, sort of the, the uh, you know, the, the Roe v. Wade overturned, or it's kicking back to the states. But at the same time, some states said, well, that's fine, but in my state, you have to do this. And so there's a real murky area there on how this is all going to shake out when it comes to abortion coverage and rights, et cetera. What a lot of people think will eventually happen when the dust settles, much like just access to to abortions is it'll be very state specific. Mm -hmm. Some states, the whole procedure won't be legal. Some states it may be legal, but not covered. In other states, it'll be not only legal, but covered. And finally, some states it may be legal, covered and required to mm -hmm. be covered. And, and all of that stuff is still sort of shaking out as people you know, figure out what individual states are going to do with this. And, and all the states that you would think would fit into that last category you mentioned of, of legal covered and required to be covered are, are the states you would expect. It's California, yeah. Oh, yeah. Illinois, Maine, Maryland, New York, Oregon, and, and Washington. Um, and I do know that there are some states currently that, that specifically restrict that coverage in their affordable care plans. Right. And I guess if it's a fully insured plan, then really, I suppose the only legality question would come down to whether or not the subsidies go towards that particular coverage if the Hyde Amendment was in place when they passed the Affordable Care Act? Well, and, and part of it gets into the idiosyncrasies of, um, and I know I think we talked about this, and I use this as an example. Uh, when the federal government wanted to pass a national highway speed limit, mm -hmm. they realized that they couldn't force states to accept a federal, you know, that's clearly in state's purview. So what they did was they said, hey, if you want highway funds, you got to do this. Right. I tied money to it. Same thing happened with some of these mandated benefits because, man, there's heavy subsidies from the federal government. Um, along with this, I said, hey, if you want that, you got to get this. You know, it's mm -hmm. sort of a, I'll, you know, you don't have to do it and I don't have to pay you or send you federal dollars. So all of that stuff's going to shake out and, right. and eventually we're going to figure out where it's at. And I suppose, too, a lot of it will shake out uh, with states such as Michigan where abortion is. Um, almost literally on the ballot. And I say that only because yeah. the, the status quo is still in place here in Michigan and, and, until a court says otherwise. Um, and after this next midterm shakes out and after the 2024 election shakes out, I think we'll have a better picture of, of where things like this will be covered and, mm -hmm. and where they won't be covered. Yep. Um, we talked last week at length about rising premiums and what's driving those premiums up. Um, should patients that are either on Affordable Care Act plans or looking to purchase exchange plans, be worried about the cost of premiums going up? In general, the answer is no, okay, because the subsidies go up with the, um, you know, with the premium increases, roughly speaking. I mean, there could be minor changes, but in general, no. In general, somebody's subsidy is much more highly tied to their income level than it is to what's happening with the cost of that insurance. Part of the design for the ACA for the subsidy individuals were that they didn't get caught in this premium increase, that they got insulated from it because the, the idea was that they don't have insurance because they can't afford it. Let's not, you know, give them something and then make it unaffordable. Right. So to a large degree now, that being said, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, is if you go from making only 120% of the federal poverty level up to 500% of the federal poverty level, meaning you just, whatever for whatever reason, got a bunch better job, your subsidy is going to go away. Mm -hmm. Well, that's also a sort of by design as you make more and you need less of a subsidy here. Um, and then the flip side can happen. You know, people who have their hours cut or whatever and their income goes down might qualify for more subsidy next year. Right. So they, in general, they, they won't, they'll be mostly shielded from the yeah. rise in cost of premiums because of the subsidy, subsidy right. program. Exactly. 
we've talked a little bit about before uh, the the big credit bureaus not looking at medical debt anymore. Um, one of the things I think we can thank COVID uh, because of some of the rules that were put in place during COVID-19 um, is that it looks like debt to other insurances, other insurance plans, or debt to the IRS is not going to stop uh, someone from being able to get Affordable Care Act plans. Yeah, and this was a, a situation where I think people grew concerned, and I'm not saying it wasn't happening, that insurance companies were looking for reasons not to, to get people off their rolls who were sick. Okay, so if you're mm -hmm. using a lot of care, I wanted to get you off. Let's say we're looking for things like, oh, you didn't pay your premium, you owe us money. Now you're disenrolled. Right. Or you owe the IRS money, or you're in the wrong subsidy category. There were a bunch of just sort of gotchas. Um, now, I'm not saying that people should be able to just not pay their premium ever or whatever, but they were looking for these reasons to drop um, individuals. And a lot of that got taken care of by saying, look, you know, you can't consider that. And, and some of it is, look, if you fell behind on your premiums last year, you still have to be offered 2023 coverage. You have to at least make your first month premium. Mm -hmm. And the insurer can keep going after you for that past money. It's not like they have to write it off. Right. But they can't say, well, remember, you forgot to pay us your October premium, and therefore you can't re-enroll. That, that's what they mm -hmm. sort of got rid of. One of the things that this particular article from Kaiser Health News points out is that uh, they call it comparison shopping will be easier. Yeah. Um, and they, they point out that under a different set of rules, health insurers must make available a cost comparison tool, uh, either online or over the phone, so that mm -hmm. they can predict costs for different things. Now, given the way that... Uh, the hospital transparency rules have not been enforced. And given the fact that many of the provisions in the No Surprises Act have yet to be enforced regarding price transparency, do you, th Kaiser Health News says this is coming out on January 1. Do you think this is going to be ready for consumers on January 1? Well, there's, there's sort of a couple pieces to it. One is this, you, you're supposed to be able to say, well, how much is it going to cost me if I want to have a baby or something right. like that? Um, and some of that will be there because some of that's fairly predictable, the co-pays. Um, some of that will be there for average sort of co-insurance. Well, an average delivery cost about X and, you know, you're going to have to pay X. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be some good sense of it. Now, you know, it's not going to fully predict everything. It's not going to predict that, you know, my baby was a, two weeks premature and had to stay in the hospital an extra three weeks or whatever. Those are sort of things that aren't going to be able to be fully predicted. But the other thing that what they're talking about it being very more ability to, to compare cost is they're now saying that the plans must offer at least a plan with certain specific or standardized benefits. So what they're neutralizes and saying, you know, if, if our silver plan says it can have a $20 physician copay and a $500 deductible and a 20% coinsurance, you have to offer something that looks exactly like that. So somebody can say, payer A is 10 bucks a month out of my pocket, payer B is 20, right. and their benefits are standardized. Now, you can also offer additional plans with additional benefits or slightly different benefits, but there has to be that common apples to apples kind of package that um, is offered so people can price shop a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Staying with the last thing regarding kind of patients and the, and the Affordable Care Act right now, we talked a few weeks ago about the end of Bright Health Group and um, the fact that they're closing a lot of their exchange plans uh, start well, starting a few weeks ago that they're not going to be renewed for 2023. For patients that are in areas where they can only access one insurer on the marketplace, should they be concerned by that? Um, the, the concern, you shouldn't be too concerned about the cost because, again, most of the cost is neutralized and right. these rate filings have to be approved at a state level. So they can't just charge you. They can't just say, we're the only one. We can charge whatever we want to. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to go for rate approval, much like, um, you know, the power company does, et cetera. What should be concerning is more of a network issue, you know, because if you've really only got one option and the, and the ACA plans is all, are all that you can pick, your doctor may not be part of that plan. And you really, mm -hmm. really don't have any other option other than to choose a different doctor. So that's the biggest concern. Now, that being said, there are employees running all over the place, like mine, that work for Fulcrum, who also don't have a choice. I only offer one insurance company. So right. technically speaking, you know, if, if your doctor wasn't on the plan and your employer only offered United or Blue or Aetna or Sigma, whoever, you really don't have a choice. 
you know, mm -hmm. there, so, so it's really no different than a lot of the employees, you know, have to deal with. Right. I, I want to switch now to uh, talking about what the physician side of the Affordable Care Act and, and starting by asking, is now the time for physicians to be evaluating some of their marketplace contracts or should, should they have done that months ago? Should they be looking forward to 2024? How should physicians be looking at their, uh, their contracts for these exchange plans? Well, I, you know, I think physicians should sort of almost constantly be looking at all of their contracts. Um, these are people who are buying your services and they're doing it, you know, at different price points and at different, um, you know, operational efficiencies. Um, one of the things that, um, a lot of people don't think about is even if all your insurance contracts paid you $100 for an office visit, okay, that doesn't mean you're going to collect $100. You know, there's a patient responsibility. Right. And different insurance companies have different amounts of, in different plans, different amounts of patient responsibility. And there's going to be some bad debt there, some patients who just aren't going to pay. Well, one of the problems with the ACA plans, it's just the nature of the beast, is the people who are in the ACA plans are probably the ones who can least afford the patient responsibility. Think about it. You know, most of them qualify for a subsidy. That means most of them um, make less than, for a family, 400% of the federal poverty level. And that sounds like a lot, 400%. But that's only $54,000 for an individual and mm -hmm. $73,000 for a couple or a family. So individuals, think about an individual making, you know, less than $50,000, if they get a huge medical expense and are out of work for a while, they might not be able to pay that big deductible or that coinsurance. And so in general, the Affordable Care Act plans have higher bad debt than others. So the average Blue Cross PPO member, you're probably going to collect more than the average Affordable Care Act member. It's just something that, that as any business, you need to factor those things in when you're looking at them. So when we look at some of these sort of things, I, I guess I'm thinking of it like a timeline. When, when should they yeah. be evaluating these p particular types of yeah. contracts? Yeah, okay. that's different. So yeah. really it's when those contracts are coming up on their anniversary date because okay. they'll have different dates to them. Yep. You know, so, you know, one contract may renew in July, another one in January, and you should start looking at them several months before that date to see if there's something that needs to be done or adjusted. Um, so I would say each of your contracts should be reviewed annually. And they should start probably, you know, four to six months before that annual renewal date. All right. Well, that, that's all good information, I think, for both for both patients and providers right now, especially as open enrollment is here. And it's here for a few more months, uh, depending on what state you're in. Uh, we'll have more information about uh, this particular article by going to the show notes at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast. The next thing I want to transition to is a look at Medicaid expansion and growth and really the enrollment and spending growth uh, that, that we saw in 2022 and some projections for 2023. And the Kaiser Family Foundation did a, a broad survey of, of all of the, um, the Medicaid agencies across the U.S., 49 states responded. And overall, they reported slowed growth in 2022 compared to 2021. And that my first question for you, Ron, is why would they see a slow growth um, in the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic? So this is one of those things that I chalk up to Occam's razor, you know, which is mm -hmm. this principle of in most situations, the, the, the simplest answer is usually the right answer, you know, that don't make things too complicated. So a lot of people are looking at this Medicaid stuff and they're getting into some really complicated federal matching stuff and mm -hmm. the Families First Act and, you know, continuous maintaining of eligibility and all this stuff. And, and, and they're trying to like look for calculus when this is pretty simple stuff, in my opinion. All right. And, and, and track with me on here. So when COVID hit, we started to have large increases in unemployment. I mean, at, at the beginning of it, there were whole weeks that more people lost their job than in a typical year, mm -hmm. okay? Things were shutting down, people were losing their job. Well, that meant there were large increases of people who qualified for Medicaid, okay? Suddenly I was unemployed, I can qualify for Medicaid. That happens at the same time that expenses were going up because all these people had COVID. People were going to the hospital, et cetera. 
So at the very time we had this massive bump up in unemployment, we had a bump up in medical cost, and the people who lost their job because of COVID didn't want to be without Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Combine that with the fact that the federal government, for I think some fairly logical reasons, started funneling more money into the federal matching funds to help state with this burden because state you know, states were seeing this drop in their tax revenue as people weren't working and sales weren't happening, et cetera. And then this huge increase in their cost of Medicaid. So the federal government said, here, we'll help you out. Here's some more matching funds. You got to do some certain things to get it. More people qualify for Medicaid and we're using up a lot of healthcare services. Okay. Well, now that tracks very well with, we saw this increase in 20, in 2020, 2021. And then we saw it start to tail off in 2022. And they're projecting a drop in 2023. Okay, well, what happened in 2022? Well, we got a handle on COVID. There were less mm -hmm. people in the hospital. Hospitalizations were going down, costs were going down. Unemployment started to drop dramatically. Well, people got jobs back. They didn't qualify for Medicaid anymore. So to me, it, it makes all the sense in the world why we saw a bump up in the enrollment and a bump up in the cost and why we're now seeing that tail off. And I think you are going to see a drop in both enrollment and cost in 2023 as, again, more people are going back to work and we're getting control of COVID. Not to mention the fact, and we've talked about this before, and I don't mean to be morbid, it just is mm -hmm. what it is, that a lot of the people, the you know, the one million people or so that passed away were also, many of them, very chronically ill. That was that comorbidity situation. And those people, Medicaid or Medicare or commercial insurance, used to be paying a lot of money to handle their COPD mm -hmm. or their diabetes, and they're not there anymore. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, as, I, as I look at this and they say, oh, it went up, it went up, now it's starting to come down. I'm like, it's one of those dumb moments. Really? <laughs> that makes, you know, I mean, what else would it have done? Right. Um, and, and you don't have to look for calculus to figure out why. It's pretty explainable. And, you know, I was I was thinking something sort of along the same lines when I'm looking at this, this study from, from Kaiser Family Foundation, and it's a pretty detailed survey mm. with, you know, entire methodologies about how they, they came right. to their conclusions. And I think you've probably just summed it up best with we had an economic downturn and people fell into the safety net. Yeah. And now that we've, we're slowly on the up and up, it feels, yeah. you know, people are getting out of the safety net. Do you think then, and this just came into my head, and because and, and, you're an economist and you, you can look at some of these things, do you think that Medicaid enrollment could be a good tell of the average, um, you know, try to think of the right words here, fiscal ability of, of Americans? Um, yeah, but I, I think it, Medicaid, it, it's... If I had to, if I have to pick one indicator in the economy, if I can only mm -hmm. know one number and make assumptions about the economy, I want to know unemployment rate. Okay. Yep. Okay. That's the and and Medicaid tracks with unemployment. As unemployment yep. goes up, Medicaid goes up. It goes down. Mm -hmm. It goes down. Um, now I, I I like all economists like to have a whole lot of data, but that's the one, and that tells me what's going on with the economy um, is unemployment rate, and Medicaid tracks right along with it for the right. obvious reasons. One thing that every American is dealing with, you're dealing with it, I'm dealing with it, I know all of our listeners are dealing with it, is rising costs um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, it has to do with, you know, you can blame Russia for high, high gas prices. You can talk about supply chain issues for high costs at the grocery store, um, mailing out checks to millions of Americans during the pandemic. Mm. So with expenditures going up and the cost of everything going up, what does it look like for state budgets and what could happen to Medicaid? Well, state budgets are a bit of a mixed bag mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to tell how it's going to completely shake out. If anything, from a Medicaid perspective, there should start to be a lot of relief from state budgets as unemployment starts to drop to pre-pandemic levels and as people then start getting off the Medicaid rolls, et cetera. So if I were, you know, if I were the czar of the, you know, the North Carolina state budget, um, that wouldn't, Medicaid wouldn't be my biggest worry right now, because I think that will take care of itself. Um, and I think, you know, better days ahead from a Medicaid expenditure standpoint. Um, now, the mixed bag is this. On one hand, inflation is not necessarily bad for me the state, because, for, for example, sales tax mm -hmm. or property tax. As prices go up, I get more revenue. 
On the other hand, I'm worried about inflation because if it starts to slow growth in the economy, that's bad for me. So that's where states are a little bit of a mixed bag. They're not as as heavily driven by like the federal government is. Um, so some of this inflation stuff, especially rapidly rising housing prices, wages, because the more they make, the more they got to pay me in income taxes are all good. I don't like inflation because I don't want it to you know, start to tamp down the economy. And as a purchaser of goods and services and labor as a state wage, you know, wage increases and inflation also affect me too. So mm -hmm. it's a bit of a mixed bag right now. And the states are sort of still trying to figure out where they're going to come down on this. So when I sit down and, and I make my budget every month and, you know, I, I divvy things out at different categories and mm -hmm. to a certain extent, state and federal government do similar things, although on a much, much bigger scale, when they divvy out that money that's set for Medicaid, with my, with my personal budget, I can run out of a category and then I'm done for the month. Is it possible for a state to run out of money for Medicaid? Um, not really. Mm -hmm. um, there are ways they can try to control it, um, but they can't say, hey, you know, I, <laughs> I just spent my last dollar, so I know you technically qualify under my rules, but I'm not giving you a Medicaid card. Right. Okay, that they can't do. Mm -hmm. Part of that is... Their, their contract with the federal government, what the federal government does to to subsidize it, part of it is, you know, they've promulgated these rules, they've made promises, and they've got to, you know, mm -hmm. fulfill those promises. Um, now, the, the interesting, I say not really, is, you know, states have a limited ability to carry deficits, um, because unlike the federal government, they can't just turn on printing presses. Mm -hmm. So they've got to be much more cognizant of budget um, deficits, unlike, you know, federal government. Right. CMS, uh, staying with Medicaid, but, but moving on to a slightly different topic, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services approved some initiatives uh, that allow the states of Oregon, Arizona, and Massachusetts to use Medicaid to cover non-health expenditures. And this was something that was at the direction of the Biden administration. And some of these things include housing, meals, and air conditioning. Do you think that Medicaid funds should cover these things? Um, to me, the jury's still out on this one. Okay. And, and I'll tell you where it's coming from. And, I'm, I, and I, I want to see better data and information on it. There's this movement for what they're calling social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. um, and there, I will automatically grant there is a strong correlation. I just don't know if there's causation yet. And the correlation is this. We know that um, lower income, lower socioeconomic environments create higher healthcare costs. There's a very strong correlation there. Um, your, and you can track it just in total cost. You can track it in diseases like diabetes, et cetera. Um, you track it in access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. Strong correlation. And, and it's one of those things that makes sense, okay? Well, then the question becomes, if there are these social determinants of health, and if we could change the social determinant, will it lower overall healthcare costs? So for example, um, and I'll take air conditioning. Mm -hmm. If we can prove that by taking in hot weather states that we paid for air conditioning units, whether that would reduce the number of cardiac events because people have heat strokes, and that reduction in healthcare cost more than paid for these extra air conditioning units, well, then air conditioning units for everybody. Because what you're doing there is you're saying, I'm not paying for air conditioning. I'm paying for a reduction in cardiac events, which are much more expensive. Right. Now, if somebody can make that very, and there may be data that I just haven't seen, but mm -hmm. that very strong causation thing, same thing with, well, if we just paid for better food, or if we paid for housing, or if we, you know, and you could make that correlation that for every dollar you spend on air conditioning units, you got $5 reduction in healthcare cost. Hey, sign me up and let's start spending the money. I don't know that we've done that yet. I don't know that there isn't causation there, but I don't know if we've proved that there is. And so what I'm seeing a little bit of, and which is why they've started to do it in limited states, mm -hmm. is I think they're trying to do sort of the experiment um, to see. Now, I don't know if that the study or the experiment has been set up well enough to truly, you know, measure causation or not. If it has, great. I'm concerned that I don't want us to jump to the conclusion, well, obviously this saves money, and then open up the floodgates of, well, then we should pay for everything. 
Right. You know, then then it's just, you know, the, the if we just, you know, because you could get to the point where you, you know what, if these people just weren't poor, they'd be healthy. So let's give everybody a hundred thousand dollars. Well, hold mm -hmm. on, you know, that's different than proving, you know, paying for air conditioning reduces a cardiac event. Yeah, well, they, you're treading into Andrew Yang's yeah. universal basic income when you, yeah. when you get to that. Yeah, and that gets challenging. So, again, I, I would not come out and say that's silly. We should never, ever do that. Right. Um, but let's be careful. You know, let's not open up a slippery slope here. One of the questions that I would have had, and I think that a lot of, uh, you know, fiscally conservative people would have as well, is where the money is coming from for these particular things. Yeah. And is it taking money away from the actual healthcare parts of, of the Medicaid programs. And, and the thing I kind of wrote a little bit sarcastically when I say the notes today is, is there really so much excess in the Medicaid budgets that we just have to burn money in order to keep the budget? Well, yeah. And so it's, it's only partly sarcastically. I mean, there doesn't appear to be any, any end to what federal spending can happen. So, right. you know, I don't, uh, they, they're not, you know, they don't appear to be worried about writing any size check. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, again, if there's somebody who could show me great data that shows for every dollar we spend on this, we save $5 10 years from now, that's not a, I'm not taking money from somewhere. I'm borrowing from the future and investing it, and there will be a return. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If there was truly that five to one return, then a hallelujah, borrow the money today because in five years, I'm going to get $5 back in expense avoidance. I'll do that. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but no, it's from what from the programs I've seen with these pilot programs or whatever, they're not taking money from the brothers budget. They're adding additional money just for this. Right. Now that is coming from the federal coffers. Um, that's why I want to know, is there a payoff to it? Right. And, and the other thought, too, that is this stuff becomes um, more standard and more required is, and the federal government, like with the public health emergency, which is going away right now, it's going away in January with federal money drying up for certain things. And then they start having to require the states to keep up these programs. And some of them may not want to you know, foot the bill for some of these things. I mean, like if you live in a state like Oregon, you don't necessarily need air conditioning, you know, 12 months out of the year. Right. We'll have more information on this in the show notes for this program at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this program. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. thing I wanted to get into today, Ron, was a little bit of a spat that played out in The Atlantic and The National Review. And um, I, I hope you had time to at least glance through these two uh, pieces. Yeah, I did. Um, one was by Emily Oster, writing in The Atlantic, and she was arguing, uh, in the headline of her article was, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. We need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. The flip side of this comes from Michael Brendan Doherty in The National Review, and he says, a pandemic amnesty? Hell no. And I want to kind of jump into this debate a little bit about, because I, I think, personally, I think I might lean more towards Emily Oster's side of, look, I, I just want to move on and not think about it anymore. And I would imagine mm -hmm. most Americans are, are in that camp. But when we talk about something like a pandemic amnesty, I, I guess I'll let you do the, the setup and kind of ex explain what Emily Oster means by that. Yeah, what she means is, and her general point is, look... We just went through a horrible thing and we went through a horrible thing with not a whole lot of information in the beginning evolving information as it went on 
and it happened at a pace where we couldn't just sort of hit the pause button. You know, decisions had to be made with, like I said, either limited information or information that later we found out was wrong, but they mm -hmm. had to be made then. And so the question is, do you punish the people who made the decision who turned out to be wrong? Um, or, and do you hold a grudge against the people who attacked those decisions when they turned out to be wrong? Or can't we just say, look, it was an imperfect situation. I understand why you didn't want to do this. I understand why the person with the information that they had made that decision. We now know a whole lot more, but that old hindsight is twenty twenty. Let's just right. forgive and forget everybody because there's no point in rehashing mm -hmm. what happened then. Um, you know, and, and and that's sort of her. And then let's just move on. You know, it was it was an imperfect set of information that was evolving and changing. And you know, what's the whole point of you know? taking these through trials and tribulations. And so if somebody was yelling at you because you're wearing a mask and they're stupid and you're, and you're saying, well, that right now the current information says this would help me. You know, who cares? You know, forgive mm -hmm. the person who attacked you and they should, we should stop trying to debate those things that happened a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about a few specifics in this regard. And one of the ones that Oster mentions in her Atlantic piece was regard to the COVID-19 vaccines. And the first, and I got a, I got two ways I want to take this. I want to start with the mm -hmm. example that she gave in here was that you had Pfizer and Moderna had mRNA vaccines, which to a lot of people were relatively new, that mm -hmm. the concept of mRNA vaccines were relatively new, that is. And then you also had here in the United States, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which was a protein based vaccine. Mm -hmm. And she points out that there are the public health officials are either neutral or expressed a preference for the Johnson Johnson vaccine because it was a protein based vaccine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I know people that had the same, you know, mm -hmm. non healthcare people that had the same idea of saying, well, that one's more like the other vaccines I had. I want mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. And in the end, as she points out, the Johnson, excuse me, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines have appeared to be more effective longer than mm -hmm. the Johnson and Johnson vaccines. Mm -hmm. And she points out that, that it wasn't a nefarious decision, but it was more a rather uncertainty of we just don't know right now because right. we have to get these things rolled out. Is that an instance where we should now say, you know what, we're just not going to do the Johnson Johnson anymore? I'm sure there are some people out there that would love to prosecute all of these companies for various different right. things. But, you know, should we, quote unquote, prosecute Johnson and Johnson for coming up with a lesser effective vaccine than the other two companies? Yeah. And, and this is, to me, a, a good example of, look, both vaccines were still much more effective than the do nothing approach. Right. That's very clear. Mm -hmm. um, so and at the time when they were coming out, there wasn't enough long-term data to determine that one would be more effective than the other and, and mm -hmm. somewhat if more effective, but not like, you know, well, that one's like spitting in the wind and this other one's like putting armor on. No, they're, they're, the differences aren't that great. So I would say no. You know, one of the things that I like about the fact that we created those options where first we cleared the hurdle that both were safe and we cleared the hurdle that both from the early on appeared to be effective and they both were effective. One just turned out to be a little bit more effective than the other one. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea because for some people that said, look, I'm not doing anything MRNA that either makes me nervous. Fine. Then here's the old school for you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't think right now, given how the thing has evolved and you know, how both effectiveness of both have dropped off quite a bit because of the, the, the mutation of the virus that we should say, well, let's just, kill Johnson and Johnson, it still has right. a role. There are still people who are nervous about the technology of mRNA. Mm -hmm. Taking the vaccines in a, in a different direction. And one that we've talked about a little bit before is you have the camp that was totally against the, the COVID vaccines in any mm -hmm. particular way. And yeah. then you had the camp of people. And I would venture that at least early on in the Biden administration, the Biden administration was in this camp of everyone needs to get vaccinated or your life's going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And, that one, I think, is a little bit trickier to reconcile those two groups together because I think both sides is reluctant to tell the other person, let's just move on and not think about it anymore because both sides got so entrenched yeah. in their opinions about the vaccine. Well, you're right. And, and like a lot of things, I tend to, you know, and in this argument, gravitate more towards the middle to where both of the arguments, you know, the hell no argument and the we should amnesty have some right. legitimate points to them and, and that the truth is somewhere in the middle where I come down on this. And, and this holds true into, into this, the people who got so entrenched 
is the people that I think we should still hold responsible, meaning shouldn't get amnesty, are people that fall into one of three categories. One is malice of intent. You know, mm -hmm. if there were people out there doing things with the wrong, with bad intent, regardless of that's that's bad. Okay. Um, the other are people who are spreading just pure misinformation. Now, I know when when people hear misinformation, they go, oh, well, you're going to attack the non-vaxxers. No, I'm going to attack both. So somebody who went out there or still goes out there and said these vaccines are dangerous and they didn't do anything. That's wrong. That's right. just blatantly wrong. Now, the same holds true. If somebody's out there saying, well, you know, these vaccines will guarantee that you never get COVID and it's the only way to survive this. No, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Both of those are misinformation, and both sides did some of that. Yeah, the, the side that was like, "Well, this you're just you're a mass murderer if you don't get this vaccine." No, that's not really true. And the side who goes, "Well, these things are killing people and making them impotent," and making no, that's not true either. And then the last are people who did things for either personal or political gain, and they were sort of they weren't necessarily spreading misinformation, but they were ignoring the full truth or not telling a balanced approach for either personal or political gain. That's the people who hoarded hand sanitizer for profit. Mm -hmm. That's the people who for on either side of the political coin really played things up the way they wanted to for personal or political gain. And those people should be able responsible. You mm -hmm. know, the rest of the stuff, if somebody says, well, you know, I know people are like, well, Fauci said on this date this, and then he changed his mind. Well, you know right. what? The science evolved. Just like if somebody said, hey, in the beginning of it, you know, I think that, you know, um, that this treatment, you know, the, you know, the, oh, I'm forgetting the, the, uh, Hydroxy. Oh, yeah, hydroxy. The hydroxy is, well, in the beginning, people thought that might have benefit. And then once the yeah. science changed, if that person says, you know what, I was wrong, it's changed. That's fine. You know, you shouldn't go back and just because in the moment before we knew everything, um, you know, there were rules that were passed about how much we could do outdoors. That was when we still didn't know how much transmission happened outdoors. Mm -hmm. Once you, you know, get better science, change your position. That's fine. Science does right. that. You know, it's interesting because there's, there's a few, you know, specific people I'm, I'm sure that people would like to point out with where they made either intentional mistakes or, or what you point out for political gain. And the right. first one that comes to my mind, which still strikes me as a little bit weird, was when uh, during the 2020 election, Kamala Harris said something along the lines of she didn't want to get a vaccine produced in the Trump administration, which yeah. was kind of like what I don't that doesn't make any sense because right. it's not like. Donald Trump himself is sitting there approving the vaccines. He's not going right. over the science right. Right. and telling the FDA to look at things. And at the same token, on the other side, it's it, it, we, it's been proven that it's you can't use that as a defense in court that, oh, I was misinformed and then right. repeated all these things because Alex Jones now owes millions of dollars to people from uh, Sandy right. Hook because of him saying I was misinformed and that's why I just repeated this lie that that didn't happen for years and years and years and years and years. The last kind of specific example I want to point out, because it falls a little bit into what Doc Hurdy's point is over at National Review, and, and, he, and he points out that, you know, we, we should either be prosecuting, and he, and he didn't use the word prosecute, that's my, mm -hmm. my you know, summary of, of what he's getting at, but either prosecute either literally or via the ballot box, the people mm -hmm. who made mistakes so that it doesn't happen again. And the best example I can think of something like that would be uh, with the whole the nursing homes thing. And this has been a, an ongoing discussion in a number of different States because you had uh, previously Andrew Cuomo had his scandal with putting COVID positive patients into nursing homes uh, okay. here in Michigan. Governor Gretchen Whitmer did the same thing. Now, of course, Cuomo got kicked out of office because of other mm -hmm. inappropriate things. Whereas here in Michigan, Governor Whitmer is up for reelection coming next week. And this has been a talking point of the Republican mm -hmm. campaign. Do you think that that's an appropriate place where we shouldn't give amnesty, or do you think it's a it's a similar situation of we didn't know at the time, and that that's a that's a defense that can be used reasonably here? Well, to me, there's 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 two different items here. Sure. Um, the ballot box item, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is when somebody else tries to tell me what I should consider when I walk into the booth. Okay, mm -hmm. I can consider anything I want to. That's the right. beauty of a democracy. I could walk into the booth and say my whole election criteria is I vote for the taller guy. Now, yeah. I, it's probably a silly way to do it, but that's my right. And if somebody in Michigan says, 
I'm going to vote against Whitmer because fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Good for you. And if somebody else says, and I'm going to vote for her because of that exact same thing, good for you. That's mm -hmm. how that works. So, you know, when everybody says, well, this should be, no, don't tell me what should be. I get to choose that. If you want it to be your, your litmus test, hallelujah. You mm -hmm. get to have whatever you want. Now, the other thing gets into, and I know prosecute, they don't mean like criminally prosecute, right. but when people start talking about, well, we want to investigate this person or that, I don't think the investigation per se of past decisions is necessarily a bad thing as long as it's sort of done the right way. So, for example, if somebody wants to look and say, Governor Whitmer, you made a decision to do A. Now, mm -hmm. I want you to explain why you made that decision. What advice were you getting and from whom? Now, if the answer to that is, you know, in hindsight, that was a bad thing to do, but I was getting advice from the following medical professionals, experts, mm -hmm. who were telling me that if I didn't do this, this worst thing could happen. And at the time, with the information available, I made what I thought was the best decision. It turned out to be, in hindsight, it turned out to be wrong. Okay, then that's fine. Now, if it was, hey, you know, politically, I couldn't handle this, and, you know, and I really didn't have any good advice, and I just decided to do this, well, no, that's negligent, and right. you should help be held responsible for that, potentially even criminally. You know, there it gets into some of, you know, ethics classes get into this all the time, this whole thing of, you know, if... Um, you know, if you were the president of the United States and you found out there's a small town in, in North Dakota with 10,000 people and it had this completely uncurable, fully transmissible disease that would wipe out the whole United States if you didn't nuke them right now and kill all 10,000 people, would you do it? Well, that's a horrible ethical decision. Right. But one could argue, yeah, for the good of the rest. I don't know the specifics around, you know, Cuomo's decision or Whitmer's decision. I think it's valid to ask the question. What's not valid, in my opinion, is to say, well, I'm going to use this because you're of a different political bent than I am, and I'm not really going to look for the honest truth of why something happened and was it at least a reasonable decision given the information. I'm just going to look for the truth to you know, to hang somebody, whether that's Fauci or Whitmer or Trump, for that matter. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm, you know, let the, let the facts and the truth go where they may. Don't don't try to build an investigation to reach a conclusion you've already reached, is my opinion. And and I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I think that right now, I don't think, whatever side would be running the investigation, I don't think it would be taken seriously by the other side. And I think, for no. example, the, the January 6th committee is, is the perfect example of this right now. Mm -hmm. Republicans, well, I'll... I'll People who vote, people who voted for Trump, clearly do not take the January sixth committee right. seriously. Right, um, and and you can you can blame both Democrats and Republicans mm -hmm. for that. In the same way that a lot of Republicans didn't take the the impeach any of the impeachment right. stuff seriously, um, and if Republicans gain control of Congress after next week and and they want to investigate Dr. Fauci, I'm sure all of the Democrats would not take it seriously right. and wouldn't wouldn't want to have any part of it. Um, so I think that it would be. Well, I, while I agree, I think it would be difficult to say that there's a fair investigation. Uh, at least half the country would say it's not fair, uh, depending on who's doing it and what's it about. Yeah, the other yeah, I completely agree, and, and so that's really unfortunate. The other thing in this whole debate, and this is I think also unfortunate, is it, it and it, it's been happening since day one. It amazes me how quickly what could be a fairly simple question gets involved in so many other issues. You know, like mm -hmm. the simple question of, you made a decision A, what were the factors that led up that decision? Was your thinking logical? What advice do you have? What information? You know, that to me is a logical and fairly simple question. Suddenly expands into, you know, constitutional rights or this, you know, I mean, I know the one article, the hell no article, mm -hmm. you know, at the very end started, and I was tracking with him fairly good until the very end he was like, you know, uh, I think the, the quote was, the big questions in the pandemic were not just factual issues about a disease that was all in quickly. There were also disputes about whether the Bill of Rights mattered anymore. And I'm like, oh, good Lord, here we go yeah. again. You know, and they said, think of, you know, Bill de Blasio telling Christians, Jews, and other religious believers that they had to abide by the city's rule against gathering of 10 people or more, even as he himself was violating the rules in the public support of George Floyd. Okay, first of all, any public official 
this country or others, who sets about a rule for everybody else and then breaks it themselves, deserves to be punished. I mean, come on, yeah. both publicly and privately. I mean, right. you have to walk the walk. And a lot of public officials were guilty of it, and they deserved that what they got. But taking something like in the middle of the worst pandemic we've ever seen and suddenly getting into this philosophical discussion about you know, constitutionality of the Bill of Rights, I don't like that grandstanding. And the other thing is, there isn't a single right out there that is unlimited or without, you know, without restriction. And that's what people, well, I have the right to, no, you don't. You don't have the right to free speech for everything. You mm -hmm. don't have the right to freedom of religion for everything. I can't say that my religion includes, um, you know, human sacrifice and, and hide under the freedom of religion. Right. And you don't have the right to do things that negatively impact others. A lot of people forget that, and I'm sorry, and I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, <laughs> that the first and the only, the, the, the primary Supreme Court ruling about the government's ability to force you to get a vaccine happened in 1905. Right. And it was for smallpox. And the individual, it was Jacobson versus Ma V. Massachusetts, the individual that Jacobson was a pastor. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they still said, for the greater public good, yes, we can force you. And that's what they were saying with the whole church thing, is not we're saying you don't have the freedom of religion, we're saying that right now, more than 10 people gathering creates a public health risk to the people not in that church. And so you're not making for the same reason why states can pass helmet laws. I can't say, well, I have a motorcycle and I have the right to be stupid and ride without a helmet. No, you really don't. Right. You know, because you're impacting other people with the fact that if you get into an accident, you you know you, you need a lot of health care, we probably have to pay for it. So, mm -hmm. anyways, I'll I'll step off my soapbox now. But I I thought his argument was good in that we shouldn't just give blanket amnesty. Personally, I think we should look back at some of the things that happened in COVID and try to figure out how to do them better. You know, should there be in the in the in the case of a national pandemic, should there be some kind of a, you know, an expert think tank that's non um, party driven that we can rely on for the best information. Should a governor of a state be getting different information than a government of another state and different information that maybe the federal government and should all of that information be coming from something that's non-political? That mm -hmm. may be a wonderful learning experience and say, well, right. let's do that differently next time. That's all valid. So I don't, I don't agree with it just blanket amnesty because we should learn some mistakes. And people who were doing it for malice intent or for misinformation or for public or political gain, duty to be held responsible for that. But I also don't think we should just suddenly get into these, you know, the Bill of Rights and all that mm -hmm. stuff. You know? and, and and without going too far down the, the religion track, the thing that has to be remembered, too, is that most of these religious leaders agreed because yeah. they were following the same guidances right. that New York Mayor Bill de Blasio and the governor of New York were following. And clearly, by and large, the majority of people in the United States have been fully vaccinated against COVID, mm -hmm. the boost, accepting the booster shots. Right. But the majority of them have been fully vaccinated against mm -hmm. COVID, and that would include many religious individuals. And, yeah. you know, for example, in the Catholic Church, pretty much all of the people were, the hierarchy rather, were mm -hmm. pro-vaccine. You had some rad trads out on the right that were not, mm -hmm. but by and large, it was evangelicals, and by and large, it was... Um, people that were more concerned about arguing some of these quote unquote constitutional, I don't want to say constitutional, but more individual rights sorts of things, rather than talking about the common good were the ones that were not interested in having, you know, the vaccine. I don't want to say force upon them or having schools yeah. forced upon them, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah. I remember in your episode, and it's a great point you bring up that the, 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 the large part of the mainstream, you know, religious leaders um, were not balking at this. And I didn't, and I don't um, mean that to say that they didn't like it, but that oh, I think yeah. most of them said that this is something we have to do right. because of the common good. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I, and I forget who it was, and I forget what, what denomination or religion they were. Somebody was talking, and, and the individual said, Look, at this point right now, if my pr pr uh, practitioners suddenly got in a room and said, Please come, you know, administer to us, I wouldn't because I care about all of them and I want them to be healthy. And I would tell them to please all go and not be there because, you know, what's most important to me is, is, you know, the people that I serve and their well-being both physically and spiritually. And I thought that's a great way to put it, you know, cause he was like saying, even if they all got together, I wouldn't go to them because that would be, 
detrimental to them. And that's not mm-hmm. what I'm about. I'm, I'm, you know, a man of God who's all about love and, and, you know, those kind of values. And I thought, wow, you're right. That's, you know, we, we sort of lost track of that. Yeah. And I mean, I could go down a whole rabbit hole of Catholic principles of, of obedience and subsidiarity, <laughs> but this is not the time or the place for that here on the <laughs> yeah. Flatlining Podcast. Yep. Well, Ron, before we go, I want to ask you what you would think if I told you that we had some healthcare haikus coming up in the final thought. Oh, good Lord. Seriously? They That's are fantastic. Hall- they are Halloween-themed healthcare haikus <laughs> published in Kaiser Health News, and those will be coming up next in the final fantastic. thought. Fantastic. Fantastic. thanks for coming on the program today. No problem. Thank you, as always. Even though Halloween was two days ago, I wanted to share with you something I found on Kaiser Health News earlier this week as part of our final thought. And that would be some Halloween haikus about healthcare. These were submitted by readers of Kaiser Health News, and you can find a link uh, to all of them in the show notes for today's program. I'll read you just two COVID, Ebola, monkeypox, seasonal flu, who needs Halloween? Surprise billing curbs like the famed Headless Horseman, remain incomplete. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Harrigan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. Good week.